Voila, in view, a humble vaudevillian veteran cast vicariously as both victim and villain by the vicissitudes of fate. This visage, no mere veneer of vanity, is a vestige of the vox populi, now vacant, vanished. However, this valorous visitation of a bygone vexation stands vivified and has vowed to vanquish these venal and virulent vermin, vanguarding vice and vouchsafing the violently vicious and voracious violation of volition. The only verdict is vengeance, a vendetta, held as a votive, not in vain, for the value and veracity of such shall one day vindicate the vigilant and the virtuous. Whew. I think I'm a rap god now. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Post Credits with Gil Garcia, where we go beyond the final scene. Remember, remember, the 5th of November, gunpowder treason and plot. I see no reason why gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. That is right, my friends, it is time that we dive into the dystopian epic V for Vendetta. Oh man, I'm so excited to cover this film for you this week. When I was putting together my November schedule, I realized that I had two large gaps, One at the beginning of the month, then one at the end of the month near Thanksgiving. And because the NFL season is in full swing, I thought about possibly dedicating this month to football movies. But the Marvels and Hunger Games releasing this month kind of squashed that idea. Then I remembered the date, November 5th. What better movie to promote and review than the movie that is centered around November 5th? V for Vendetta. Fair warning for any listener who has never watched this movie, now is your chance to check it out. And I highly recommend that you do because we are talking full spoilers the whole episode through. Due to the age of the movie, we are not making any post-credit spoiler discussions. You have been warned. Now before we get into it, let's take a look at the upcoming schedule for the month of November. Next week, we have the latest MCU travesty, I mean movie, uh, The Marvels. (laughs) And like every new release we review on this show, it will have a spoiler-free review, as well as a post-credit spoiler talk format. And then shortly after that, we prepare for the Thanksgiving weekend with a family favorite film of mine, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles from John Hughes. And then to finish out the month, we have the movie with the longest title of 2023, barely beating out Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. We have The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. (laughs) Now, December is right around the corner, so if you have any recommendations or a film you would like to hear me cover on the podcast, please submit it on social media. My handle is PCWithGill on both Instagram and X. So, without further ado, let's take a look at the film of the day. Is V for Vendetta a relic of my teen youth, or is it an underrated political classic? It's time for Act 1, Synopsis and Connections. V for Vendetta is directed by James McTeague, who is known for Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven and Ninja Assassin. It is written by Lana Wachowski, Lily Wachowski, and David Lloyd. Of course, the Wachowskis are known for The Matrix, Cloud Atlas, and Jupiter Ascending, whereas David Lloyd is the creator of the graphic novel V for Vendetta, alongside Alan Moore. The film stars Hugo Weaving as V, Natalie Portman as Evie, 
Stephen Fry as Gordon Dietrich, John Hurt as Chancellor Sutler, and Stephen Ray as Inspector Finch. The film is set in a British dystopian society where a shadowy freedom fighter known only by the alias of V plots to overthrow the tyrannical government with the help of a young woman. The Guy Fawkes mask that V dons in this film is iconic. We've seen it used as a literal symbol of liberation with the infamous hacking group Anonymous, and we've seen it all over the internet with memes. I even dressed up one year in high school as V for Halloween. Cape, bob haircut, pilgrim hat, everything. The film came out at a time when I was a sophomore in high school, so it was plastered everywhere. At one point, I even had the poster for V for Vendetta in my room. It came out the same time as Watchmen, too, so those are two iconic DC Vertigo comic book film adaptations from Alan Moore that I absolutely loved as a teenager growing up. (laughs) And quite honestly, this V for Vendetta rewatch... It really has me itching to do a Watchmen episode eventually, probably next year. Both of these movies defined me as a teenager. I swear, I loved them. There's a lot of similarities between the two books and films. Both are politically charged, they're highly stylized, and they're action films that have inspired generations of filmmakers and comic book artists. Speaking of which, now is a good chance for me to give a fair warning to you, the audience. Since I last watched this movie, a lot has changed in the world. I don't think I could speak about V for Vendetta without referencing political references and social issues that have happened since 2005. Trust me, I'm going to do my best to refrain from offending people with political leanings and identity politics, but we will be discussing things like the rise of fascism, the transition of the Wachowskis, who at the time of this film were known as the Wachowski brothers, and the persecution of homosexual and faithless lifestyles. True story. I once had a family member who bought this movie only so that he could skip to the final scene. He didn't like any of the politics that were involved with the movie. He found them incredibly boring and that the the movie made no sense to him. It's like watching Titanic, but turning it off once Jack and Rose get on the ship or skipping to the final shot of Inception just to see if the totem topples over. I know that this was made at the cusp of YouTube, but I still find it pretty weird that you bought a movie just so that you could watch one scene in particular. But fortunately here, we don't have to skip to the end. We go all in, and without any further delay, it is time that we arm the spoiler train headed straight for Parliament with Act 2, The Review. Let me first define this film with one of the many quotable lines from V. Beneath this mask, there is more than flesh. Beneath this mask, there is an idea, Mr. Creedy, and ideas are bulletproof. At the heart of V for Vendetta is a film not about anarchy. It's not about vengeance. It's about freedom. When London has lost its soul and becomes a corrupt cesspool of political propaganda and oppression, V fights for its liberation. You see, V is more than just a man behind the mask. He is a reminder of a time when London had the courage to stand up to its government. V is the modern reincarnation of Guy Fawkes, the leader of the gunpowder plot. The gunpowder plot was a failed attempt to assassinate King James I of England during the opening of Parliament in November of 1605. The plan was organized by a devout English Catholic who had hoped to kill the Protestant King James and establish a Catholic rule in England. 
V famously quotes the poem, Remember, Remember, the 5th of November, with his first on-screen appearance and sets the tone for the entire film. The aesthetic of V is not only top-notch, but it's elevated in its badassery by the one and only Hugo Weaving. Hugo Weaving's presence is powerful. Now, because the role of V is mostly ADR'd, I was almost certain that Hugo Weaving only stepped into the sound booth while making this movie. But to my pleasant surprise, Hugo actually wore the costume and performed majority of the scenes himself. You can actually check out some of the uh, behind-the-scenes footage for, from V for Vendetta. You'll see Hugo Weaving actually wearing the costume, and it's pretty sick. The guy's a freaking legend, man. <laughs> when you look back at the filmography of Weaving's career... How can you not love him as an actor? His connection to the Wachowskis is evident, so it made sense for him to step into the role. He wasn't the original person set to play V, which we'll get to later on in the episode. But his connection to the Wachowskis is evident here. Obviously, he portrayed Agent Smith in the Matrix films. He was also Elrond in The Lord of the Rings, Red Skull in Captain America, and he was even Megatron in the Transformers series. Hugo's done it all in the world of geekdom. What makes this performance so spectacular is Hugo Weaving's ability to make his speech patterns really fluid and eloquent. At no point during his extremely elaborate monologues do you feel overwhelmed or confused by the context of what he is telling you on screen. In most scenes, his words come out as smooth as butter and as lyrical as poetry, like a maestro conducting his orchestra. But let's not beat around the bush. V is an anti-hero and is undoubtedly a terrorist. But Weaving gives V purpose. He has well-meaning and charismatic empathy behind him that makes him a villain to root for. He's just so badass all the way around. The film is adapted from the Vertigo DC graphic novel of the same name, written by Alan Moore and designed by one of the film's writers, David Lloyd. Lloyd and the Wachowskis do a great job of making this film complex, yet palatable for casual audiences to follow V's political assassinations and maneuvering. But this film isn't just about V, though. It's about Natalie Portman's Evie Hammond. The relationship between these two characters is something special to behold. It's sometimes antagonistic, it is sometimes inspirational, but mostly it is a romantic understanding of the philosophical desire to want to be liberated. Portman does a lot of emotional heavy lifting since she is essentially playing against a faceless character with V. Evie is pulled into the political turmoil of this dystopian London when she is nearly raped in an alley during London's curfew, a curfew that is put in place by the sinister Chancellor Sutler, and we're going to talk about him more later on in the episode. The bond between Evie and V begins when he saves her life. Apprehensive at first, the two share a memorable scene on the rooftops of the city when V reveals his first step to liberation is destroying the old Bailey building in London. You know the girl is right for you when you show her a romantic terrorist bombing on your first date. (laughs) So let's take a step back in time. This film was made in 2005, so at this point in time, we must remember that Natalie Portman was not a prestigious actress. She was coming off two of the worst films of her career. She's also, at this point, years away from her Academy Award-winning role in Black Swan. And just this year, she appears in Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith, where she cries about Anakin breaking her heart. Just before that, she did Attack of the Clones. Oof. So 
her casting in this film was a bit curious at the time, but I got to give her credit. This is a good vehicle to essentially relaunch her career and stop her from going into obscurity like Hayden Christensen did after episode three. There was a lot of negative stigma around Natalie Portman coming off of those Star Wars films, and this was a good step forward for her. It gave her a lot to work with. I really do like her work in V for Vendetta. She has to endure a lot physically and emotionally in this role, all while giving a pretty convincing British accent. When I said she goes through a lot, I really mean it. This film sees her nearly raped. She gets dolled up in a children's costume as bait for a creepy priest. She gets imprisoned, has her head shaved, and then she shares her dinner with rats. <laughs> Yet still, the most powerful aspect of Evie Hammond is that she does not relinquish vital information about V to the British fingermen. She learns to endure the cataclysmic strife, pain, and her inevitable death without surrendering someone that she holds close. In this pain, Evie truly becomes the hero of the story. Her love for V is beyond just physical, but it's a deeper spiritual love. Sure, he captures her multiple times and lies to her for a better part of a month or two, but he makes her a better person at the end. He teaches her to live without fear, and in that case, we see a real character growth for her. She goes from squirrely production assistant at BTN to this revolutionary icon and leader. Not only did he teach her to live without fear, he taught her to live with conviction, to live with empathy and compassion, to stand up for herself and those around her. Her love, conviction, and compassion are what drives her to pull the lever on the train in the final act of the film. She learns that V is more than just a person. He's a manifestation of every person in London that has ever been oppressed by its government silenced for thinking outside of societal norms and government institutions and i really respect what they did with her character in this film this is actually a good spot to take a look at one of the filmmaking factoids that i found while researching this movie evie hammond had three other major actresses vying for the role outside of natalie portman one of which was a co-star of hers in the phantom menace kira knightley kira knightley was actually on the top of the wachowski's wish list for the role but she ended up pulling her name from consideration since she was about to start the filming of pirates of the caribbean dead man's chest the other two actresses in contention were bryce dallas howard and scarlett johansson i like to think all three actresses ended up going on to have successful careers so it's good for every single one of them how this actually played out and i'm glad that natalie got this role in particular especially after the negative reception she got for her acting in Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith. It was refreshing to see people see her as a competent actress. And this film kept her from blinking away into oblivion, possibly never getting an Academy Award. But who knows? But it's an interesting metaphorical butterfly effect to think about. Maybe if Natalie Portman didn't get this role and she did float into obscurity, perhaps Amy Adams would have got the role in Black Swan and maybe she would have won her only Oscar. <laughs> Poor Amy Adams. You are way too good of an actress to never have won an Academy Award. I'm pulling for you, Amy. <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. This movie is touted as being a Wachowski film, 
but they were only the writers and producers. The visual flair of this movie comes straight from director James Mateague, who shares a lot of influences from the Wachowski Matrix films, and it tends to lead people to believe that this movie was also directed by them, but sadly it is not. The action sequences are fantastic here. You get to see the ferociousness of V right from the offset when he takes down Evie's four assailants in the alleyway. You know, he is non-lethally taking them down with the knife, and there's one shot where he punches an assailant and he goes flying directly into a brick wall. Mateague smartly chooses wide angle shots to give us a fair perspective on the knife placement when he's fighting these folks and also we're allowed to see the movement of the action. We know exactly what is going on. He also smartly knows when to use slow motion and when not to. Being touted as a Wachowski written film, you would expect a lot of slow motion and bullet time but he restrains it quite a bit. He uses it very wisely and only selects shots. <laughs> it gets pretty bloody and glorious in some scenes, most notably when V takes down BTN. Our vigilante disguises himself in smoke and amongst innocent civilians. Then, when he gets caught, he does this amazing action sequence where he slices a few of the guards' throats, he headshots a guard with a knife, impales one person through the jaw that goes up into his brain. It's fucking fantastic. But he doesn't just get the action right, he gets some more subtler, intense moments correct as well. The scene where he poisons the coroner, Delia Surridge, is a standout moment in the movie for me. It's horrific in that V has silently assassinated her for being the central reason why he was experimented on in Lark Hill. He assassinates her in a morbidly painless way, injecting her with a nerve agent that will kill her biologically moments after he leaves. It gives V enough time to make peace with Delia and delivers her swift retribution despite her guilt. It's a beautifully striking scene as well. V's mask cuts through the shadows of the curtains like a painting, and then the brilliant red of the Scarlet Carson flower he gives to Delia strikes amongst the dark setting. Now, we're likely going to talk about it more in detail during the filmmaking factoid segment of the show, but the domino sequence is fucking awesome, and I want to give it its credit here. It is insane. But like I said, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about it later in the episode. I also really like the side characters in this movie. They are all very well acted by character actors that we've seen plenty of times on BBC shows and other media. First and foremost, John Hurt as Chancellor Sutler. John Hurt is another fucking amazing actor that has been in so many geek culture films, much like Hugo Weaving. You know, he was in Alien, Harry Potter, Hellboy, Doctor Who, Indiana Jones. I could go on forever with his incredible filmography. The power of his voice is enough to make him such an incredibly memorable presence in the movie. He doesn't physically appear in the film until the final 15 minutes of runtime because he's that good as just a giant television mouthpiece. He is fantastic in this film, and even though we don't get a lot of him, the moments that he is on screen, he is chewing up the scenery, and he is a memorable villain. His portrayal of Sutler is reminiscent of an Adolf Hitler right-wing fascist who successfully overthrows London's monarchy and ministry in favor of a totalitarian dictatorship. And I couldn't help but also sense a bit of similarities with a certain modern-day political figure. But I'll leave their name out of this show. I'm sure you could fill in who I'm talking about. <laughs> 
I have told members of my Discord server that this movie not only holds up, but it's gotten better with age. And the Sutler character is a huge reason why. A lot of the imagery and the inference of a political power coup can be applied to today's world as well. I hated Sutler, but I loved the performance from the late, great John Hurt. He was fantastic in this movie. Rest in peace, John Hurt. Also, Stephen Fry is in this movie. Fry is one of the most popular British that-guy actors. He portrays a character by the name of Gordon Dietrich, who has a close relationship with Evie. Gordon has a lot of similarities to V in the way he carries himself throughout the film. Dietrich lives a double life. Although he holds a high position in BTN as a talk show host, he's also a closeted homosexual, which he hides from the government so that he doesn't get found out, sacked, and killed. He reveals this to Evie when he discloses his collection of outlawed outworks, and he even has some erotic photos of men. What makes Dietrich so memorable, despite having another small role in the movie, is that he's just so charismatic and charming. Certainly, he was an underrated character in this picture. The rest of the cast is also rounded out very well. Inspector Finch and his partner Dominic have nice little character arcs of their own as they discover the heinous links of corruption within the English government. And then, also, the other character worth mentioning is Chief Inspector Creedy. Creedy's role in the film is to be the muscle of Sutler's militia. As the head of the Fingermen, Creedy is the one physically responsible for the gassing, bagging, and terror spread amongst the English population. Tim Pigott-Smith has such a cold demeanor about him that makes him psychologically imposing. It may not seem like it, but Critty also kind of has an arc of his own. Growing from just an indoctrinated right hand of Sutler into a self-thinking opponent to Sutler, and by the film's end, Creedy transforms into the central antagonist. He sells out Sutler for the apprehension of V and ends up killing Sutler, which, while we're at it, Let's gush about that sequence where V trades his life for Sutler. As the finale of the film, we knew there was one more badass action scene in store for us. V has a heartfelt farewell to Evie, where they confess their love for one another, but he remains fixated on fulfilling his mission. Although Evie pleased for him to run away with her, he stands firm on his conviction. V knows it's a suicide mission, yet he still heads to meet Creedy. Friend of the show, Rick, says that everything V says is quotable, and he is right. During the prisoner exchange, V and Creedy share an excellent line of dialogue. Creedy says to V, You won't cry like him, will you? You're not afraid of death. You're like me. And then V gives us this amazing piece of dialogue. The only thing you and I have in common, Mr. Creedy, is that we're both about to die. Ooh, Goosebumps. <laughs> Everything V says in this movie is quotable, and you can hang them up in the loo on posters and stuff. It's fantastic. After Sutler is disposed of, V then prepares himself to get fired on by the Fingerman. He tanks a firing squad line of fire, eating what must have been over 100 bullets. And in what is the most symbolically badass act of defiance, V rises up, and murders the entire squad before they can fully reload their guns. The shot is done in slow motion, so you can see his knives 
twirling and twisting in the air as he's throwing them at people. He's slicing people in half, slamming them up, and then stabbing them down. It is badass. And there's a reason why the person in my family chose to skip to this scene at the end of the movie every single time he threw it on. It's because this is the best scene in the film. It's incredibly heroic and badass. And now I know what you're thinking. Like, how the hell is he eating that many bullets? Is he a superhuman or something? No, it's it's metaphorical, guys. Yes, he may have been experimented on at Lark Hill, but the reason why he takes all these bullets is more of a metaphorical showcase that he is more than just a person in a body, a person behind the mask. He is an idea. And shortly before killing Creedy, V drops the most insane line of dialogue in the entire film. Wounded and dying, V walks up to Creedy, who is trying to expend the last five bullets in his gun on V. V then says, Beneath this mask, there is more than flesh. Beneath this mask, there is an idea, Mr. Creedy. And ideas are bulletproof. And then he ends up choking out Creedy, killing him, and saving the day. This all comes to a head when the city of London finally arrives with masks on. The town watches on as the British Parliament is obliterated in an incredible display of special effects. The scene did spark a little bit of confusion for me when I was younger. After the building is destroyed, the citizens then remove their masks. We see the little anarchist girl who was shot to death for her graffiti. We see Valerie, Ruth, and Gordon Dietrich, who was also said to be clubbed to death. I had to do a double take first. Were they alive the whole time? Was this all an elaborate scheme to convince Evie to lead the rebellion? Turns out, it was more of a metaphorical shot. It's intended to pay homage to the people who lost their lives in the culmination of this epic event. It's made more significant by Evie's monologue that V has no identity. V is the idea that a government should be afraid of its people. And that V is Evie. V is her mother, her father, her brother. He is everyone. Symbolically, it's a very powerful moment. And what a way to end the film. Now what else can I say? This movie hits all the high marks of what makes an action movie special. The Wachowskis may not have adapted the source material one-to-one, but they wrote an absolute masterpiece in my opinion. This is normally the aspect of the show where I take time to talk about things that I disliked about the film I review, but for the life of me, I cannot really think of any. It isn't a perfect film, but the flaws are not egregious or obvious enough to bitch, whine, or delve into. I do believe this movie is aged like fine wine, the visual effects are still striking, the writing is highly quotable, the performance are memorable, and the story is as relevant as ever. V for Vendetta is an absolute must-see for me, and it scores a 5 out of 5. Get it? Because the Roman numeral of 5 is V. There's only one thing left to do, and that's to talk about our filmmaking factoids. Let's now move on to Act 3 for some Rotten Tomatoes reviews and filmmaking factoids. V for Vendetta is a critical and commercially acclaimed success for Warner Brothers. 
On Rotten Tomatoes, the film hits with a certified fresh seal and score of 73%. Critics' consensus says it's visually stunning and thought-provoking. V for Vendetta's political pronouncements may rile some, but its story and impressive set pieces will nevertheless entertain. And audiences widely agree. V for Vendetta scores 90% approval rating with audiences on the website. Now look, it's clear that I love this movie and I could gush about it for hours, but there are a few people with a difference of opinion. As I did so many weeks ago, here are some one-star Rotten Tomato reviews. Will harps in and says, The movie was produced in 2005 and was trying to predict the future. Unfortunately, its predictions were correct or false depending on your perspectives. Communist China has a dictatorship for 50 years. The difference is that it is a top superpower and is about to take over the entire planet. Britain and America have changed, not in the direction predicted by the movie, but in the opposite direction. They are towards a leftist dictatorship. Less freedom of speech, less freedom of choices, less liberty, less private rights, government power being used for one political party. One out of five. Well, why don't you put down the Whataburger, go touch some grass, and take a deep breath. You completely missed the point of the film, dude. If the leftist governments are taking over in your head canon like you say it is, doesn't this film inspire your conspiracies? V is fighting for the freedom of its people, not for its oppression. His actions are exactly the point that you're trying to make. But I guess allegories are absent in the simple-minded. This fucking idiot thought he was watching some documentary and took the movie too literally. Ugh. <laughs> uh. Oh, alright, this one's pretty hilarious. Samuel takes a page from Will's book and decides to go all in on the film for being fictitious. This guy says, Ridiculously fake, bland, and odd. The plot was predictable and nonsensical. These type of dystopian stories usually are, but this was especially bad. People can't survive being burnt alive and don't have time-slowing superpowers. Most people possess the ability to think and reason. V could somehow afford thousands of masks that probably wouldn't even be produced under the circumstance. Nobody can survive hundreds of bullets for that long. Young children typically don't participate in doing graffiti and going to protests and rallies. It was obvious the main character was being held hostage by V rather than captured and so on. Wow. <laughs> Firstly, the movie is an adaptation of a graphic novel. V has been genetically experimented on, which gives him physical abilities that are greater than our own. It's this particular mutation that allowed him to survive Larkhill's destruction and eat so many bullets towards the end of the film. But man, I feel like they take everything at surface level and just kind of string it along in their own political ideology. It's kind of weird, man. <laughs> I don't get these reviews. It's kind of funny. But I want to balance things out and share some positive reviews for V for Vendetta by the audience. Robert M. gives us my favorite review of the night. He says, I love this film more than I love my children. I'm convinced that anyone who thinks differently is a fascist and can go right to hell. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty bold statement there. <laughs> Wouldn't like to be one of his kids, though. Michelle writes, This movie has aged so well. Mandatory viewing. Valerie's letter is my favorite part. So compelling. 
I didn't dive into that scene too much when I was talking about my review because I knew I was going to talk about this particular review in general. But Michelle is so right. Not only has it aged well, but that scene with Valerie, Ruth, and Sarah is so overwhelmingly heartbreaking. It's the love story of a woman coming to her sexual identity. She discovers that she is a lesbian and she is being prosecuted and chastised by not only her family, but by the government for choosing to be who she wants to be and loving who she wants to love. And in her final moments, she writes a string of letters which are intended for V to read in his cell that stipulates that even though she doesn't know who the person is and that she'll never kiss them, never talk to them, never see them, she loves them giving the person who's reading the letters the hope and the courage to carry on and that love will ultimately triumph over evil. The pain we see in Natalie's eyes as she reads the letter cemented her into stardom for me. This scene is a powerhouse and a showcase of what Natalie Portman can do as an actress. Although, (laughs) I still find it a little bit off-putting that Evie kisses the toilet paper. Especially after we see the insert shot of Valerie digging the paper out of a shit-filled toilet. (laughs) But let's get back to the point. Nonetheless, Valerie's story is a major highlight of this movie. And I'm glad that Michelle brought that to my attention. I wanted to hark on that before we ended this show. Because that is a very special moment in this film that kind of gets overlooked because of all the action set pieces and British propaganda that's going on in the film. This was a moment where we as the audience got to take a break, step into the shoes of a civilian that was not in the center of the plot of the movie, and see how corrupt and how evil the government has gotten from their perspective. There we go. I gave you some good reviews and then I gave you some bad reviews. It's always fun to look at both ends of the perspective because I like to balance things out here. I don't like to lean one way or the other when I review these films. And I hope you enjoyed those reviews this week. Our final segment of the show is now where I give you some filmmaking factoids. I mentioned the domino scene earlier. This is the part of the segment where I'm going to gush about the domino scene. That scene where V tips over the black and red dominoes to form a giant letter V involved over 22,000 dominoes. It took four professional domino assemblers 200 hours to set it up. In fact, the team liked the shot so much that they wanted to see it from different angles. Different camera angles meant that they had to do reshoots of the dominoes multiple times. The domino handlers had to set up all 22,000 dominoes every time they went for an alternate shot and they did that several times i've talked a lot on this podcast about the power of practical filmmaking this was one of those shots that really blew me away and it's a testament to how cool practical filmmaking can be and kudos to those domino assemblers they did a masterful job this one's kind of interesting So, the cast and crew were only allowed to shoot near the British Parliament and Big Ben from midnight to 4.30 a.m., and they could only stop traffic for four minutes at a time for a shot. Filming was so strict on the House of Parliament that every cast and crew member had to undergo a thorough background check in order to work on location on site there. 
I guess they didn't want the filming of this movie to inspire any type of real terrorist attacks. And British Parliament, that building in particular, has been destroyed twice already in history. And they didn't want a third one to happen. One of the major challenges in this movie was how were they going to bring V to life under an expressionless mask? Thus, considerable effort was made to bring together lighting, acting, and Hugo Weaving's voice to create the proper mood for the situation. Since the mask muffled Weaving's voice, his entire dialogue was re-recorded in post-production. That's a considerable amount of effort just for one character in the film. Evie mentions to Gordon Dietrich that Eggie in the Basket is the same breakfast V made for her the morning she spent at his place. What she fails to mention, or doesn't notice, is that Dietrich and V also greeted her in the exact same way both mornings. Not with good morning, but with bonjour, mademoiselle. Also, Stan Getz is playing in the background in both instances. Now, to clarify some confusion, I'm going to quote the film itself. There are no coincidences, only the illusion of coincidences. Dietrich and V are not the same person but they are co-conspirators. V met Evie because she was on her way out to meet with Dietrich at the start of the film. V also saves Evie when she is nearly abducted by the Fingermen when Dietrich is sacked. Gordon and V are clearly in cahoots, but they're not the same person. I want to say, I might be reading into this a little bit too literally, but I want to say that this was all an elaborate plan to recruit Evie. Dietrich and V both knew of her political backgrounds, and they knew that she would be a strong, central character for their revolution. But that's not confirmed in the context of the story. It could just be speculated about. Now, when shooting the fight in Victoria Station, the stuntmen moved in slow motion on set, while David Leach, Hugo Weaving's stunt double, moved in real time making it seem as if he was moving much faster than the Fingermen. The scene was shot at 60 frames per second to slow the Fingermen down even further. (laughs) And I gotta say, they did a great job. That scene is sick. The fact that he got to take out all of them while they were reloading their weapons. Chef's kiss. This next factoid is one that I only understood in my rewatch, but I never really put it together when I was a teenager. There is a duality in this movie between V and Evie. The start of the movie has V and Evie making similar preparations as they begin their work. They both are getting dressed and prepared for the evening of November 5th. Both in the film undergo disfigurement. V is scarred by fire, and Evie loses most of her hair. V is created through that fire, the laboratory fire scene at Lark Hill, signifying destruction and vengeance. In contrast, Evie is reborn through water, the reigning rooftop scene that we see signifying rebirth and forgiveness. The movie ends with V's death symbolizing the end of suffering and vengeance, leaving room for Evie and forgiveness and rebirth to take over for London. Once again, this movie is filled with a lot of deep analogies and symbolism, and that's one that I didn't pick up on until watching it this week. I love that factoid so much, and it boosted the movie up from a four and a half to a five for me. I I love this movie because of that. Now, did you folks know that four people portrayed V in this movie? It wasn't just Hugo Weaving and his stuntman. 
but the original actor, James Purefoy, his performance is actually kept in the film. Unfortunately, Purefoy bowed out of the film about four weeks into filming this movie, and so Weaving was cast to take over. A lot of his performance is still in the movie, and only the director knows which shots are exactly Purefoy and which ones are Weaving. But there was also a fourth actor. That fourth actor was a barber. Since Natalie Portman's hair could only be cut one time, a professional barber donned V's iconic black gloves and essentially portrayed V in the brief scene where her head is shaved. Now imagine if they gave Hugo Weaving the honor and he fucked up Natalie Portman's hair. <laughs> oh, that's, that's cool though. Imagine being the barber that can now proudly say, oh yeah, you guys see V for Vendetta? That was me. <laughs> That's really cool. Let's get to my final factoid of the day. And it goes back to where it all began. Alan Moore. Alan Moore is the creator of V for Vendetta and Watchmen. Moore is a bit of a controversial figure. After selling the rights of his books to DC and seeing those books get adapted to the big screen, Moore has been highly skeptical and antagonistic towards the studio for these adaptations. He hates this movie, and he hates The Watchmen. Following the negative experience of From Hell and The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Moore decided to reject all money and credit from Hollywood on any of his adaptations of his work. Thus, he gave all that money he would have gotten to the artist who drew the character with him. He also rejected his own credited by credit from the movie. What a spiteful piece of shit. <laughs> but a brilliant one at that. His work is undoubtedly very influential and it's iconic and legendary. But the man himself has a screw loose. What the fuck is the point, dude? He's not being some type of saint or giving the money away to charity or anything like that. He's just straight up saying fuck you to the studio. That's all he fucking cares about. Alan Moore is a weird dude, but I gotta thank him for two of my favorite comic book movies of all time, V for Vendetta and Watchmen. So with that, my friends, we have concluded V for Vendetta. Did I forget anything? Did you want to chime in? Let me know on social media. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter with the username PCWithGill. If you haven't already, please review and like the show on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. I will return next week when we go higher, further, faster together with the Marvels. Thank you for listening. Now, go catch a movie.